G'day and welcome to another Green and Gold Rugby podcast sponsored by Strike.com.au. Uh, go to Strike and get yourself a cradle to hold your uh, iPhone in the car. Um, use Green and Gold Rugby as the uh, secret word. Get a discount as well. Um, got a big podcast tonight. I've got Logues back. G'day, mate. Are you there? Oh, I think we might have been having troubles with Orange, actually. Um, we'll, we'll try and get him back in um, in a sec. Um Oh, he might be back. Logs, are you there, mate? Okay. Well, I do know I've got Hugh Cavill. Mate, how are you? Oh, I'm okay. I'm slowly piecing together the fragments of my life after Saturday night, but I think we're, <laughs> we're slowly getting back on track. So oh. it'll be right ready to be broken again on Saturday about the same time as last week. So. Yeah, I think trying to, keep the boy, trying to keep buoyant for this podcast is going to be uh, the tricky bit, except that we've got um, a top guest, um, a guy I've been trying to get hold of for a while, actually, uh, former Wallaby, now um, and had a couple of great coaching gigs, just moved on to his next one. Nathan Gray, how are you, mate? Awesome, gents. Great to be here and, uh, yeah, ready to rock and roll. Cool, mate. Well, look, let's kick it off and say um, congrats. You, you, you pumped being back at the Tars? Yeah, I really am. It's, um, you know, it's a great opportunity to, to, to coach any side, but to coach a side and at a club where, you know, I was lucky enough as a player to, to have, um, you know, to be involved with a long period of time is fantastic. So very excited about the opportunity, but uh, certainly... Under no doubts of the um, the challenges and difficulties that are going to present itself there, and uh, ready to uh, to give it my all. Cool. And so, does it hold a bit of a special place for you, the Tars? Oh, look, it'd be impossible for the place not to. Yeah. Um, it does, and uh, but it's a totally different mindset. The approach now, as a player, you're so involved and a little bit more focused on yourself more than anything. But uh, mm. as a coach, that's it's a 180 degree. Turnaround where you know your focus is all the other players and, and getting the best out of them, and and from that, that's a, that's a real challenge and a really rewarding part of coaching. Okay, so mate, so I've got a question here actually that um, goes right back to the beginning. So I've got a guy here, simply known as Finn on Twitter, and he said, yeah. ask ask him if he's if he got his work ethic from working for me in an East Brisbane timber yard in the nineties. Does that make any sense? <laughs> Mate, it does actually. I used to work, uh, used to work in a timber yard, uh, out at, um, oh, where was it? In Wacol, I think it was, um, yeah. at Trust Pack and was packing timber out there and met a, a, a litany of interesting characters. So, yeah. G'day, Finn, how you going, mate? And, um, <laughs> mate, I certainly didn't learn, uh, any good card techniques and didn't learn how to smoke from those blokes as well. <laughs> but so, since we've gone back in time a bit, um, how did you get into rugby from from the start? Was was it a no brainer, or did you try some other things? How did it all start for you? Oh, as a player? Yeah, like you know, back when you were a kid. Yeah, yeah. I um, you know, I, had a, I didn't start playing rugby until I was um, until I was thirteen. So I was uh, a late a late developer, a very very late starter in rugby. Um, and pretty much, I went to I was living in the islands in in Fiji, New Guinea, with my parents and. Um, my parents sent me to um, boarding school on the Gold Coast with my brother um, as, a, as a young 13-year-old, and all my mates were in in the afternoons were going down to the fields and playing sport, and they asked me to come down, and I, I said, "Yeah, yeah, sweet, no drama." So I went down and had no idea about the game at all, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, ended up started just playing rugby, and most players were saying five, eight, and centre as their as their two preferred positions, and. That's what I said. So yeah, and the rest is uh, the rest rolled from there. So you just jumped in, and, and so where did you kind of kick off, like club and, and that that sort of stuff? Well, I, I followed I followed a really a really solid pathway in terms of of my progression through the ranks. So you know, I played junior, under fifth, junior, under fifteen state rugby and, and mm-hmm. high school, and mm-hmm. um, I didn't 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 make the Australian schoolboys. Um, I right. missed out. Um, I, I trialled as a number eight. Um, and missed out there, and then started playing club footy in the back. One week in the back row, one week in the in the centres of the young colt. Then first grade, played in the centres in first grade, and then 
under 21s, Australian under 21s, um, and then was got got a contract with the Waratahs and yeah, progressed through from there. So it's uh, it, was, it was a long pathway and uh, and one that you know that required a lot of hard work, but I was very fortunate to be able to be a part of it. Great, and so. Um Mate, you've you've switched switched around now. Obviously, having had a couple of coaching gigs, what do you like about coaching? Look, yep. well, as a player, I, I I I said to myself, look, when I finish playing, I'm, I'm out of rugby. I'm pretty keen to, to do something else. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I started coaching in Japan that you know part of my playing deal was that I coached as well. And I just really got really a great great sense of satisfaction out of sort of taking my knowledge from what I'd learned and, and passing it on to these young guys and, and seeing them blossom and, and gain confidence on the field and, and mm-hmm. gain confidence in themselves as young men. And that you know, was really, it really drove me and, you know, and I really, really plowed myself into it. And then I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to, to move back with um, after five years in, in Japan and, and move back to the, and kick off with the Melbourne Rebels. And, you know, that, that, that desire was... Was, was really burning to get back here and contribute to Australian rugby, which had, had given me so much. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, um, that's the main thing that really drives me is that the ability to, to see guys get better and get confident in themselves and, and also see that smile on their face after after having a good win and doing a few things on the field that they, they probably didn't think they could do at the start of the year. Great. And I've heard it referred to, actually, I think it might have been Link referred to it as like an analogy where... You know, it's like when you're the player, you're like a racing driver, but that's a very different job to being like a coach where you're actually like building a car. Did you see it as a big difference like that, or was it just a natural extension for you? No, it was a definite. It was definitely a, a, a big shift in, in your focus. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I probably, as as a player, I I really relied on the blokes around me because I was pretty busted and slow and flat myself so I had to make sure uh, all the other guys were around there looking after me so that that focus of, of trying to get the best out of the guys around you was, was something that was really important to me as a player um, and you know moving into coaching it's it's exactly the same you need to identify what what ticks in blokes what 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 makes them motivated what drives them what what forces them to be trying to become better and then you know you've got to find all those right buttons to push and, and provide to provide an environment for them to be able to do that and mm. that's um, that's a difficulty of coaching and, and coaches who get it right um, are successful and those that aren't are, are doing their best. Yeah. And so, mate, I understand you're going to be focusing on D at the Tars. Um, what's the Nathan Gray defence philosophy? Look, my, my defensive philosophy is all about efficiency. It's it's a matter of, of having using the right tackle at the right time Mm-hmm. And having it, and not have first of all having nice, having good solid technique, and being confident in what you want to do, and then going out into the field and being efficient with your defence. And secondly, I'd say, look, uh, the willingness to be into the contest and and the ability to to be in a tackle situation, and it's it really is a one on one you versus me, and that willingness and that intent to win that contest is is something that's at the core of my uh, of my defensive philosophy, and you know, encompassing that is your role in the team. You know what you do to help your teammates from a defensive perspective is enormous in our game, and you know I want I want to coach players and want to instill in players that mindset that your defensive role is, is is really critical to the performance of the team, and and you don't want to be letting the guys around you down. Because I mean, as a player, that was one of the things that I thought really stood out about you was, you know, the, the uh, physical nature that you brought, I guess, um, both in attack and defence, but you know, obviously in defence. Is that coachable, or is it just something that comes with a guy? Oh, I think it's a bit of both. Um, to be honest, mm. you need to you get that confidence through your preparation and through your technique and, and the guys around you. Um, but and, but you know, some guys are wired that way to be a little bit more aggressive defensively, and and you know that's that's the makeup of that personality, that individual in a the team. There's mm-hmm. other individuals in a team that have different skill sets and different things that motivate them, and yeah. they're not they're not better or worse. Um, it's just something that you know you as an individual can bring to the team. And for me as a player, that was that was something that I could help my teammates do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I saw that as a point of difference for myself. Um, other players that I played with had different points of difference, and you know, but they were equally um, just as willing and committed. It was uh, just a matter that I was. Uh, I really found that as part a part of my game that was that set me apart. And and coaching it, I uh, I really enjoy seeing guys. 
um, get the benefits of working hard um, on and off the field, and and then they you know they actually fit in the game and they defend really well as a, as a collective unit and individually, and it's, it's a it's a very powerful thing. Okay, mate, um, you've just finished up at the Rebels. Uh, what kind of learning or lessons would have you taken away from y- your time there? Well, it's been fantastic. Um, you know, initially coming in under under Rob McQueen and working with um, Mark Baker and Damien Hill. Um, you know, I learned a lot from those guys from their experiences overseas, and and obviously Damien being very successful at Sydney Uni for a number of years, um, and and then into the second and third year with John Muggleton. Um, you know, he's a he's a he's an excellent defensive coach. So I certainly learn a lot learn a lot of him and, and bounce a lot of ideas off him. From his experience and Damien Hill being the head coach, you know, his mindset and how he how he prepares a side is is something that I've definitely learned from. So, mm-hmm. okay, great. I'm always always you know, every coach you come across, you want to learn more and more. Yeah. Okay, mate. And then look, um, what went so wrong on Saturday night for the Wallabies? It was a pretty de- depressing old night, wasn't it? Look, it was always going to be difficult for them, you know, the the expectation or the, or the hope of, of the Australian rugby public, and yeah, you know, you've got to match that up with the reality of the blokes in the black jerseys, and mm. it's quite daunting um, their confidence and their ability to to squeeze a team, yeah. and and that's exactly what they did to the Wallabies. You know, in at the breakdown and in their defence, they were they were exceptional, and they forced the Wallabies into a number of turnovers, and they weren't able to cope. But in in saying that. You know, it's certainly something that is not can't be fixed in a very quick, short turnaround. And I've got no doubt that Ewan will have the guys working very hard and being very focused on what's required to get the job done in Wellington. Yeah, I mean, we had a an article that we well, actually, I wrote uh, a week or so ago. It was having listened to David Kirk. Um, he was giving a talk at the uh, Sydney Rugby Club actually for the rugby networking meeting there. And yep. he, he went through a lot of really interesting points about, you know, sort of structural problems within Australian rugby, about us not having the same amount of competition or development pathways, um, and a number of other things which, you know, are really kind of deep-seated things that I would imagine would actually take years to change. But he was seemed to be saying, look, unless yep. you change these really deep-seated things, you, you know, you're not going to be able to kick on. But I guess in my head, though, is thinking back to the time when you were playing with the Wallabies and when they were, you know, really successful patch... I mean, those things weren't necessarily all right back then, were they? And and if they weren't, so I mean, you know, is the kind of the playing stock we've got so different now, or you know, or is this something that's fixable, you know, with you know the the team we've got? It's just a case of getting some of the right coaching and 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 players performing. Well, it's a, it's a difficult one to answer in terms of you know you're comparing generations of players where yeah. you know the, the the onset of professionalism. Um, was only quite was quite young in terms of that that sort of playing group. It only been professional for you know for five or six years, mm. whereas as now the game's been professional for so long and that that development of players coming through. Now people always say that you know Australia are quite lucky during that period to have all those players, but in saying that, all those players worked bloody hard to mm. uh, to put themselves in a position to be you know the best in the world, and um, you know I think that. The, Definitely, the the lack of that that strong second tier competition, you know, is is um, is evident in Australia and it has an impact. Mm. Um, but you know, I don't think that's going to change too quickly. So, it's a matter of getting the best out of what we've got, which is a strong Sydney club comp, a strong Brisbane club competition, and you know, strong competitions in you know in Western Australia and and um, and Canberra and, and Melbourne and whatnot, where you know certain players are identified and. And just squeezing everything we can out of that, and putting putting as much time as we can into the players we have, mm. because you know, looking for a solution outside of what's available is, uh, I don't think that's going to help the problem. Yeah, and just talking playing styles for a second, I think you were talking about expectation of Wallaby supporters. I think we've got yep. a very high expectation, haven't we? It especially seems to be based around attacking rugby. Thinking back, well, to look, I think, I think it's a bit of a first. I think, yeah. I think Australians, Australians are going to get up and cheer winners, aren't they? Yeah, right. It doesn't matter how they, obviously, and and that you know, knowing rugby quite well, the the preconception of what's what classified as attacking rugby is, is often blurred. You, know, you don't have to look at the Super Rugby competition and you know 
traditionally a lot of supporters are quite negative towards teams that kick too much and and bad teams that kick too much and kick away possession. And you look at you look at Super Rugby teams this year, and you know the, the Cheetahs, who are an exceptional side, and um, the Chiefs and the Crusaders kick the the Brumbies as well, kick the ball more than anyone. So yeah. it's all about the quality of the quality of what's going on. Answer your question. I think the you know the the playing style that um, teams are trying to get onto the field, the the, the All Blacks uh, and the Wallabies, they're playing quite a similar style of football. It's just in terms of who can execute it best, and mm. when you get it wrong, um, and when you're not clinical in what you want to try and do, it doesn't matter how good the the brand of football that you're doing. Um, it's uh, you're going to lose. Yeah, because I mean, I, I flicked on an old, and I couldn't tell you which year it was from, but it was a, a Wallabies test in which that I uh, think that you you were playing, and I'm pretty sure Bernie Larkin was playing, and it was, um, you know, there was a fair bit of you know good, you know, high ball kick chase there. I mean, I, it yeah. seemed to me we've kind of forgotten that that actually used to be part of the game plan, right? Oh, yeah, it's quite frustrating when when uh, you know you get. Sometimes you get that mindset of players where, you know, they just got to they've got to run the ball from everywhere and mm-hmm. they need to hang on to it and try and create things out of nothing. Where, you know, you really sit down and look at the very successful sides. You know, the All Blacks being, you know, at the at the top of the tree. Um, you know, they kick the ball. They kick the ball more than anyone. They really do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got to look back to Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Any time they are in their twenty-two or even in their forty, um, any lineout was caught taken down and box kick straight away. Yep. The pressure straight back on Australia. So it's, it's how you look at it and it's how you execute it that are the real uh, differentiators. Yeah. And so, mate, um, to finish off then, how can they turn it around? If there's, you know, if there's anything that we they can kind of do, the Wallabies, to kind of shore this up and maybe give us give us a shot even um, when we're over there because, you know, now we've got these away games. Um, where does it start? Yep. Well, I think mate, the first most important thing is not to change too much. Um, you know what they what you saw on on Saturday night from Australia. You know when they when they were in the when they're in the New Ze- when in New Zealand's thirty meters, New Zealand were giving away penalties left, right, and centre at the breakdown. They were consistently knocking points over and kept that scoreboard ticking over. Mm. It was just defensively on the other side of the coin where you know New Zealand you know attacked down that right hand edge where, where James O'Connor was and. And had a fair bit of success down there, and you know that's a couple of little turnovers at the breakdown, Kurandrani and whatnot, where you know you hand a team you know, 15, 20 points. Mm. That's easily fixed. So I yeah. think it's a matter of staying the course in terms of their game plan, being just a little bit more trusting and more confident in each other defensively um, on multi-phase, yeah. and yeah, and just getting out there and absolutely getting stuck into those blokes. Yeah, take them out of their comfort zone and. And sort of have them looking around, thinking, "Geez, this is a this is certainly a different beast to what we experienced last week." And you know, I've got no doubt that um, they can get the job done. So, mate, just to finish off there, just talking about attitude, the, the Waratahs coaching staff—it's um, not going to be a, the, or the staff room if there is one. I don't know if there is or not. It's not going to be quiet, is there? I think uh, there's going to be plenty of opinions going around there. Have you worked? With, <laughs> have you worked with Czech before? No, I haven't worked with Michael before. I haven't worked with Daryl. Um, and I was lucky enough. I was coached by, by Alan Gaffney. Yeah. Um, and played against played against Daryl a number of times. Yeah. Um, I, I do know him, but not not so much from a rugby coaching perspective. Um, just a couple of old blokes used to butt heads to each other, yeah. into each other. But um, oh look, they're 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 they've been a, they're a good team, and I'm looking forward to adding my uh, my little piece of the puzzle to, uh, to what they're doing at the Waratahs at the moment, and. And certainly excited about uh, my my contribution and and uh, and and giving back as much as I can. Great, because just who's been so who was in charge of D was um, at at the Tars then for, for this season. Look, I think they did it. They all they all they were all across it this year in yeah. terms of they um, they all they all chipped in and, and got the job done together. Right. Um, so and, that, and Michael sort of was looking for. A, for someone to come in and do that specifically and and look at the the contact area as well. So. Um, that's sort of part of my brief, and I'm very excited about uh, getting stuck into that role and contributing. Excellent, mate. Well, look, thanks for your time. That's, that's brilliant. As a Tars fan and somebody in Sydney and myself, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It was an exciting last year. Adding you into the mix this year can only um, bolster it even more. So good to see you back. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for the, uh, thanks for the 
vote of confidence and uh, yeah, very much looking forward to getting out there and coaching in, in front of a full uh, full Allianz Stadium next year. Yeah, good one. All right, mate. Good luck with it all and thanks for coming on. Cheers. Right there, right there. Now, for those of you who've just listened to that interview, you're probably going to think that, as usual, I've been a complete egomaniac and hogged the guest all to myself. But uh, we had some uh, technical issues um, as that went. So I first of all lost Logs' input there and then um, actually Hughes as well. (laughs) So um, it wasn't uh, just me being an, an egomaniac. But I've got you guys both back now. I know, Logs, you heard the rest of the interview with Grazy. Interesting stuff. Yeah, very interesting stuff. I think he's going to be a great addition to what the Waratahs are trying to do. And, um, you know, there were times there this year where you could probably see that they just lacked a a little bit of really tight structure in defence and they got a little bit loose from time to time. And, you know, I think their attack, their their up-tempo game that they're trying to play, you know, ball in hand and just really, you know, shifting it around the park um, has a lot of promise. And if they can back that up with a watertight defence that that Grazie will no doubt bring, um, they could be a pretty formidable formidable outfit next year. Yeah. The the other bit was, uh, Hugh, and you would have heard at least in the bit that you heard, was he's a pretty eloquent guy, isn't he? Yeah, really well spoken. Yeah. Really well spoken. Yeah. Uh, look, I like to what Logue said. Like, now's the time of year, generally after the after the end of the season, but uh, but after the first Wallabies game, that, that us Waratah supporters start to look to next year and think, geez, you know, now's my focus is on the Waratahs because the Wallabies clearly uh, <laughs> are, are a lost cause. So 2014 is going to be our year for the Waratahs. Actually, yeah. just, adding, just adding to that point, um, I've just recently finished a series of articles on on coaching for firstly the Lions programs and now the Rugby Championships programs and I spoke to a whole lot of coaches around the place you know around the world in New Zealand and Europe and here and in talking to all those guys the one thing that struck me about Nathan Gray was how clear he was able to make the concepts during an interview yeah um, when I was asking him about defense he was absolutely he was really crystal like he could just list one first do this second do that third do that you know and he's a very uh, he's certainly eloquent but he's able to make concepts very very clear yeah. in a way that a lot of the other coaches surprisingly weren't um, so I think as a player he would be a tremendous bloke to play under just because you know exactly what he's after and exactly what he's asking you to do and he's able to make it very very clear. You know, it's one of the things that does amaze me. It's been a real privilege in doing the uh, podcasts uh, over the years now, over the 120 odd that we've done. But, you know, you talk to different people and you realise, like in any walk of life and any profession, you know, different people have different strengths. And I guess what hits me is you can talk to rugby players and coaches who, in their performance, are fantastic. You know, they're no doubt they're rugby geniuses, but you ask them to talk about it. And, and quite often you'll just get people who just say, oh, I don't know, I just do it. You know, they, they, they don't have a concept, like a, a mental concept that they can describe like that. So I think the point you make there, Logs, is a good one, which is not everyone can turn that into words and communicate it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but he, he obviously seemed to be able to do that. Um, and then the final point that I made there, Hugh, it's going to be a bloody interesting one, isn't it, the TARS? I mean, geez, there's no backwards uh, characters there in the, in the coach's box. You know, you, you're between between that lot, geez, you, you you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of them, would you? Oh, exactly. Yeah. Look, time will tell if it's a good thing or not. But uh, mm. certainly, the Waratahs making making all the right noises for 2014. So, yeah, yeah. We've got as to... they were generally do in the off season. Do you feel like you said champs. that before, Hugh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm I'm right up in the bandwagon, driver's seat. I'm, I'm getting my spot, getting my seat early. Uh, right behind the driver, just yeah. Uh, Let's kick this preseason off already. Um, okay, I can hear our Queensland our listeners dropping out as we speak here, um, wondering when this became the, the TARS sort of uh, propaganda machine. So um, before we get carried away with ourselves, let's bring ourselves back down to earth uh, with more than just a bump, a horrible crash. Saturday night, it, it wasn't pretty. It started okay. You know, for, for a bit there. I mean, when I say okay, um, you know, we managed to wrestle ourselves back after an early, after a bit of an early uh, shock, and then it all just ran away. Um, you know, I think from about the 28th minute it, uh, to about you know to about well the 70th minute, it was kind of just one way traffic and just one sucker punch after another. Uh, Logs, what happened? Can you explain it to me? 
Oh, what happened? Um, we made a lot of errors. Is what happened, and mm. and if you look at um, if you look at just turnovers um, and handling errors, uh, we had a total of about thirty. Now I've spoken to a few professional coaches around the place and asked them in recent times what the benchmark is for your average game, and and they say that total errors in that way, you know, turnovers and handling errors and that sort of stuff should be fifteen or less. You know, if you can have sort of 10 or less, then you, you're exceptional. But if you can keep it around 10 to 15 for a whole game, then that's probably about right. And the All Blacks, I think, were about 17, 16 or something like that. Yeah. And we were 32. Um, so, you know, you gift that many opportunities. The problem with turnover ball, obviously, is that um, the opposition gets it against a fragmented defensive line. So they, you know, they get a great opportunity to attack. Um, and you know, obviously, from uh, from um, you know handling errors and that sort of thing, it, often they get scrum ball, which is great foundation to play off. So, we've just given them so much um, so much good quality ball. Although the Wallabies had most of the possession, so yeah, uh, you know, two thirds of the possession really. And aside from the errors, they probably and the def- and the bad defensive reads, um, they probably were sort of in with a shot. Yeah. Uh, but six tries to two, and really, you know, Will Genya's try. Um, off Hooper was an opportunist try, and then um, O'Connor's try was, you know, him stepping around a big prop, which you'd expect him to do. So, other than that, there wasn't a great deal of creation. Yeah, I mean, they seem to have mastered this art, the All Blacks. I mean, it's like the Chiefs. You know, they played a lot of rugby without the ball, um, and just that, it's just that when they get the ball, they're just you know so clinical with it. Um, I mean, Hugh, what, what you know, what what were your big takeouts for the game? I know you you kind of fired off a a review quickly, which um, is always tough, you know, as you're watching the game live and then to zip something off, um, and then had a bit of a, a rethink about it. What what did you get on the second pass? Yeah, it's funny. I think I walked away from the ground uh, on Saturday night, as I do all too often these days, thinking <laughs> what the hell just happened, and yeah. you know, a bit shell shocked and thinking it was it was appalling. But you watch the game a second time and, and you know, we, we weren't too bad. You know, we, we had our moments and I actually likened it to the British Lions game, the third test, where we went down early, you know, really early, and then we gradually sort of clawed our way back into the contest and uh, then, you know, we went down again we gradually clawed our way back in again and at about the 50-minute mark, we were, we were down by two points or three points, I think. Mm. And, you know, with half an hour to go, you're right in the game. But then, you know, in one 10-minute period, the All Bucks scored three tries and blew us away. Mm. So it's – and then from, from after that point, the game was dead, but we actually, you know, got back to parity in those remaining sort of 15 minutes. Mm. It, it was, you know, ultimately the All Bucks were the better team by a considerable margin, as the scoreline suggests, but – I don't know. There are some positives there. It just we we looked small, we looked inexperienced, and I think you know that that kind of told in the errors and and the mistakes that we made. So, and because I think that's a really good point. And Logs, I mean, it, it's almost like you could have. It's like the Lions took off some red jerseys and put some black ones on for for the way the game ran, wasn't there? I mean, it was spookily similar in the kind of the flow of the game. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty similar, um, and I suppose you know we just we just were never really allowed to get into our rhythm. But I think the the other thing that was probably similar similar to the Lions was um, we had guys in key positions that that weren't executing. And look, you know, I sat here on this same podcast barely a week ago and said that I was so uh, excited about Matt Tamua playing ten, um, and I thought he was the right choice, and he was subsequently named and. You know, he 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 had one run all game, um, which was you know basically just taking the ball to the line, sort of five meters. Other than that, he just he really just shoveled. Um, and I just thought, re- I was expecting a lot more from him. I was expecting a more aggressive, assertive game. And whether that's just him being young and inexperienced and being a debutant against what is one of the best teams of all time. Um, I don't know, but you know, I I just expected a lot more from him, and I think perhaps that transferred a little bit of pressure around the place. Uh, I also said, you know, that Jesse Mogg, on this same podcast about two weeks ago, I think I said I was really concerned about Mogg's physicality in a Bledisloe test, and that was proven to be true. You know, as the, in the last line of defence, it is really just do or die stuff, and uh, he was found wanting and. And that's disappointing because he's got so many other attributes to his game. But when you've got a, 
a 10 and a 15 and a guy like O'Connor having a shocker on his wing, um, it all sort of adds up to a lot of holes where, you, where you're leaking points. And mm. um, Yeah, so I, I think in that sense it was a little bit like the Lions. We were a bit rabbits in the headlight. Mm. I mean, I, you, you finished on the word there, rabbit, and talking about O'Connor. I mean, Grazy said it in his interview, and actually I've t- talked to another super rugby coach who um, we've got some analysis coming uh, through from uh, hopefully tomorrow. Um, we'll get on the site. But they said both things, and Grazy said as well that the, the All Blacks look to target um, James O'Connor. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, I'm just up to about the 30th minute at the moment with kind of pulling some of this video analysis together as I go through. It just takes a little bit of time. And he's already had, you know, uh, three shockers, two of which um, result in tries. And I'm not saying, I think especially with this, with the, with, the, with the latter one, which is the McCaw try, there was so many errors that happened in the Wallabies defensive line that I, I think you can't put the whole thing down to him. But he definitely, he's not on his wing. He's not on the wing where McCaw scores and he's run up and, and got nobody with a, with a charge out. So th- it looked like they kind of had a good look at him and picked him. And then if you look at, conversely, they seemed to, you know, the ball, they kept the ball well away from Izzy Falau. Um, so it was very interesting that, that it looked like they decided who they were going to pick as their weak link. Um, did, what did you make of that, Hugh? Because I know you had a look at that as well. And was there anyone else that you felt that the kind of the All Blacks got the better of throughout the game? Well, I, I, I'll talk about O'Connor first mm. because I actually disagree with both of you. I think O'Connor had a good game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first try was obviously an error by him, um, you know, pretty clearly. Mm. Uh, but, but it was, but you your know, hands gave it away. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it was still a peach of an offload by Cruden. Mm. I mean, I, I think. You know, it, it was a bad error, but if Cruden goes to ground, someone pointed out to me today, if, if Cruden goes to ground and doesn't throw that pass, O'Connor's right in there for the turnover. So, you know, it was, a, it was an error, but, you know, it could have, could have come off. But this, I, I disagree with you that McCaw's try was his fault. I think O'Connor was inside, had to push inside because Horwell and Hooper were on the ground from a ruck. And in fact, the bloke that was probably a little bit more responsible would be Michael Hooper because he didn't push out as he probably should have. But that's probably one for the video analysis. But I think O'Connor, I, I, on the second viewing of the game, I watched O'Connor very closely. And I, I thought defensively he was okay after those first sort of 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of worked his way into the game. And, and I thought in attack, he was actually probably our most threatening player. Mm-hmm. So... I, I, you know, I, I don't know if I, I agree with you. He was a bit rusty on the wing. He hadn't played there for what, a year and a half or something. So, mm. yeah, you can kind of understand a few little errors. But uh, I, I think I, I think McKenzie might be considering moving him to fullback next week um, for that reason, but also to get him involved in the game a bit more. Well, he's down as uh, six attempts and three misses. So I guess in the three that I've seen so far. Um, they all happen within the first half hour or so, so maybe he kind of uh, manages to even it out later in the in the game. I maybe. just I just wonder with O'Connor whether he's really not better served, or whether the team's not better served with him coming off the bench. Um, and when you look at the way some of these sides play, you know, particularly the Springboks, what they're going to really do is they're not going to be playing. I think unlike the Lions, they're probably not going to play from 40 or 50 out. They're going to try and just get field position, get down in the 22 and play from there. So what that means is as a winger, you're doing a lot of defending, you know, sort of 10 metres out, 15 metres out. And if you're a small guy like like O'Connor up against a big winger, um, it's pretty hard for you to be pulling those big guys down one-on-one, you know, when you're only 10 metres out or 12 metres out. Um, and I think if you look at what McKenzie did with his 40-man squad earlier, he, you know, he had Tamani, he had Peter Beetham, uh, Nick Cummins, you know, all the wingers were all big guys. And it wouldn't surprise me if he went for a bit more physicality at some point. And I personally, you know, you saw the best of O'Connor or the you saw the benefit of O'Connor in that last try, you know, a fresh James O'Connor running at big tired guys and looking for that mismatch that's where you get the best out of him in that second half of the game i think yeah any other um personnel uh that you had in mind then uh hugh yeah well actually the the other one i wanted to touch on that that, like said was matt tamua Mm -hmm. and that was the disappointment of the night i mean jesse mogg had a bit of a shocker but but uh tamua i think was the one that everyone was expecting to sort of be the great white hope, especially after the Lions series where we had O'Connor at 10 who obviously wasn't particularly suited to it and didn't, didn't do the best for his outside men. 
But what in the end, what Tamua dished up, what I thought was worse than anything we saw from O'Connor, um, in the sense that he never took on the line, he never even looked like taking on the line. Uh, and I didn't think he, uh, you know, the, the best uh, way it was shown was when Quade Cooper came on and all of a sudden you could just see, you know, things were starting to happen. He was taking the ball to the line. He had options inside and out, which he used both. Uh, you know, he was um, drifting across field and then cutting back. He was just using so many more aspects to his game mm, than yeah. what we saw from Tamur, which was just a basic shovel on every time. Which yeah, it's very you true. Know, the, the the tempo and the pace just lifted, didn't it? When O'Connor, came, uh, when Cooper came on, mm. yeah, I, I, it's going to be interesting. I, I look forward to, in a way, looking, in a way, look forward to uh, watching the rest of the game in more detail because. I guess my devil's advocate would be, and and again, you know, playing. To, I know both of you guys have said this, but you know, it is his first test and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think also is that, you know, Tamua in some of in a lot of his games for the Brumbies, you know, he, he's he's not a he's not a guy who's going to overplay his hand. Uh, and yeah, it sounds like he definitely erred on the underplaying of the hand. But I wonder if that, you know, that's kind of part of his package. Um, and it's interesting. I wonder if we kind of react to that, and we're used to now. We've you know we're kind of addicted to the razzle-dazzle. Um, and I wonder if that's what we're always looking for. I mean, I, I get, you know, another way of, another thing to ask, and I think Bob Dwyer asked it in his articles, like, look, hang on, we've gone for these second playmakers like Leila Fano at 12. I mean, isn't that the package? Isn't the idea that either of them can be the ball, pl- can be the playmaker? And if Tamu is getting a lot of heat, um, and then, but, you know, looking to get it on to, to Leila Fano, has he got a role that maybe he should have been able to answer better as well, Logs, do you think? Um, yeah, look, that's true, and I, and also to be fair to Tamil, we don't know what the instructions were, mm. um, and if if Link is really going for this um, s- sort of expansive game or a, or a or a fast game where they recycle ball and play again, then the instruction may well have been, hey, get it on, give it to um, Leo Lufano, Ashley Cooper. To you know, have a crack, um, maybe make a little half line break. We'll recycle quickly, get the ball back into your hands, mm. and then you know, see who you've got from there, see what you can find. And if the work at the breakdown wasn't that great, or if some, of, if there were some handling errors in there and that sort of thing, then maybe it might have looked as though Tamua was just shoveling it on and not and not sort of doing any more with it. Um, and perhaps that was the instruction. So, you know, I don't want to be too hard on him without knowing what that instruction was and mm. how that might have affected his game. But, yeah, um, disappointing, as Hugh said, yeah. Mm. Yeah, look, I think to what you said, Matt, I think there's a difference between underplaying your hand and not doing enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that Tamua too, too often fell in the latter category. You know, you can underplay your hand but still take the ball to the line and keep the defence on their heels and, you know, look and throw the occasional inside ball to sort of fix the defence occasionally. I, I just don't think Tamua did that enough. And his kicking game wasn't very good either. So I think that was another aspect to it. So, look, I'd like to see Quade Cooper start next week. I think uh, this coming Saturday, I, I just think at the moment he's a better option. But at the same time, it w- you know, it wouldn't uh, annoy me to see Tamua get another shot because... Uh, I certainly think he's obviously got a big future and and, and uh, maybe deserves another chance. Oh, the topsy turvy world of of uh, Wallaby f- uh, number tens, I tell you, yeah. it's cutthroat. Bring, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I don't know. One day he's us to the next. <laughs> yeah. Well, he he can go on the bench, but maybe you know, maybe he's just not quite ready yet, and maybe throwing him into a Bledisloe in Wellington's just going to compound things after he's clearly struggled in Sydney. Could, Maybe could be just a few steps off the bench might be. Yeah, well. Uh, okay. I mean, I think the, I think I think the same for Jesse Mogg. To be honest, maybe he's just not quite there yet. Yeah, and but here's the thing: I don't think that necessarily means either these guys get get thrown out because of it. Um, you know, they've both clearly got talent. They've both done it at a very high level in Super Rugby against a lot of the same players. Obviously, internationals are next step on. But you know, I don't know how we expect these guys to be playing it. You know. Uh, balls out against the best team in the world straight off. Um, so we'll yeah, see. Yeah, but, but my but but my argument on that is it's uh, there are better options. That's my but that's my point. It's not so much that these guys had bad games, but clearly I think there are superior options now at ten and fullback. It's not like say use use the cricket as an as an example. It's not like the Australian middle order where we're just turfing blokes out. And bringing blokes in that that aren't you know that are about the same ability, and we're just guessing and hoping that they're going to come good. I mean, I think Quade Cooper and I think 
either Falau or O'Connor at, or at fullback will, will be better options. So that's my argument. So let's maybe turn it to something that's a little bit more positive, I guess. Um, there was a hell of a ding-dong at seven uh, between McCaw and Hooper. McCaw, uh, I hate to say it, as usual, you know, showed why he is who he is. Um, but Michael Hooper... Um, at least in the first half, as far as I've got with my analysis, um, it's it's a curious thing being at ANZ. You know, I you walk away, you know what the score is, but sometimes that's about it. Um, is the kind of the view you get. Um, so, you know, but in the first half anyway, it's a ding dong battle, and Hooper, and I think he's got a lot of votes from a lot of other people having watched it, saying he had a great game. What did you take out of that battle, Loaf? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's always a deciding battle against the All Blacks, isn't it? Seven on seven, you know, and uh, whoever gets that um, ascendancy generally tends to create some momentum for their team. Having said that, it's usually um, a seven that is backed up by a, a strong pack, you know, giving him um, giving him that, that, that pressure, um, that uh, sort of ability to, to um, create pressure in defence where he gets the chance to make turnovers and that sort of thing that, that makes it for the seven. So I, I think it's pretty rare that you see a seven have a great game off his own bat without being supported by a good pack. And I think McCaw rightly gets a lot of plaudits for being, you know, if not the best, one, certainly one of the best sevens in the world, but he's got such a great pack around him that creates so much pressure and allow him the latitude he needs to play that that, that well. You know, I think if you put uh, Michael Hooper um, into the all-black pack, he would be equally as dominant, um, you know, and it just speaks to the quality of someone like George Smith who um, has probably been in a lot of packs over the years that, that perhaps weren't quite as dominant as the All Blacks pack, but he is just a standout every time. Yeah. So I think, yeah, we've only Hooper's only going to get better. Um, and, we can, you know, that is that is certainly a bright spot, as you say. It's something to look forward to. Yeah. Other positives. Um, Christian Neliofano, I saw someone say this on Twitter. Um, has he missed a test kick yet, a test um, conversion? He's, uh, I think his record's, question. I think his record's pretty damn good. He keeps slotting him, doesn't he? Uh, and, and if he does, um, that is, you know, I mean, that's a key piece of the jigsaw that we haven't had filled for a long time. So even if, he, if, he, even if he's not dazzling at 12, um, I think just, just his uh, penalty and place kicking is, 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 is pretty damn amazing. Um, any other positives, um, Baba? Uh, yeah, look, I think there are. Look, as you say, Leo, I think he had his best game so far, you know, as a Wallaby, which is a which is a good thing. And I, I'd say the same for Rob Simmons. Mm. I uh, he, you know, I gave him a bit of a kick up the ass in my match review, and I think that was uh, when, I, when I had a look at the game again. I kind of realised that he actually, you know, he actually did was in a lot that I didn't see. Do, do you think he and, took? Um, do you think he <laughs> took note of that? Like he, he responded in the, in the replay. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, look. You know, he kept texting me, yeah, yeah, you know, even at half time. And I said, mate, you know, focus on the game. But the, actually, the, the little thing that he did as well, which was, I, I still think he just has this um, little streak in him that he does this slightly brainless, niggly stuff, which I still would like to see him cut out. Mm. First up, he, he could have been penalised for a couple of things. Firstly, he was running back on side uh, when the Wallabies were on attack, I think, and, and clonked out one of the All Blacks in the defensive line just apropos of nothing just for just as he was coming back on side just for the sake of it and luckily it wasn't picked up and the other one was um in the lead up to Wilgenia's try you don't see it on the tv as well as you do in real life but as the all blacks what happened was they had that line out throw to the back and rob simmons on the ground just as the all back jumper gets in the air just basically shoves him out of the way and uh puts the jumper off balance to the point where he just spills the ball and um, goes over the back to Wilgenia and, and or to Hooper, and, and the rest is history. So he was lucky to get away with that one as well. So yeah, it looks great. Especially Jubers, he, he usually loves going back for a for a look upstairs. Yeah, that's right. I was worried he would do that, but um, look, he had his best game so far. So and and um, let's hope it continues. I mean, I'm just looking now at the player stats, um, and actually both Simmons and Horwells just they jump out of the page. Um, they really use them. I mean, we talked about the go forward and how are the Wallabies going to get them, but it looks like Simmons and, and Horwell were supposed to be the answer there. They both, Simmons had 10 runs, uh, Horwell had 12. Um, no other forward got close. I'm not even sure. Stephen Moore was the only one who got, who had, got, got even, cl- well, over half that with seven. 
Um, and then Ruck Malls, both of them, Simmons and Horwell, hit 13 and 12 each. And again, most other players were around about four, five, six, maybe even less. So, I mean, they, they got a massive work rate out of those two locks. Um, yeah, and, and sadly, they had to because mm. Ben, uh, ben Moen and Hugh McMenamin both had pretty poor games, I thought. And that was where we got out-muscled in the forward pack, you know, especially yeah. by Lua Tua, who, who shat all over both of those players. So, yeah, oh. that's something to look at going forward. Oh, an unsavory image. Um, <laughs> okay, so any any other kind of takes on, on the game before we kind of move on? I guess the question we've got left here is where to next? What do we do? Um, I guess Grazie gave us a, a bit of an idea, Logs. You're a coach. Um, you know, it's you know, it's not the emus, it's, it's the wallabies. What are you going to do? Well... Um, I, I can say in a in a sort of microcosm, in a in a very far removed way, I had a similar experience on the weekend because uh, we were playing Orange City, who are undefeated two years in a row. Mm. They won some ridiculous like thirty two or thirty three games on the trot, and and so Grazie's right. Like the only chance that you have against a side that is is so successful at whatever level is to really try and unsettle them, and the only way to unsettle them is to um, is to get up in their face in defence, is to shut down their time and space, um, is to try and pressure them into errors and then attack off those errors while their, their defensive line's not organised. Um, but that takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of aggression, takes incredible fitness, it takes huge commitment to the cause, you know, it just takes a lot of um, a, a lot of quality and a lot of commitment from the players and it takes it that they've all got to do it. You know, you can't have five or six doing it. So, you know, if I was saying for the Wallabies next week, I'd be I'd be just focusing heavily on defence um, and looking to create pressure through defence because, you know, the Wallabies have got enough quality there to score points when they get the ball and, and ultimately they will. I mean, even you look at a game that went as badly as that first test went um, and they really didn't have very much quality ball at all and they still managed to score a couple of tries um, out of not much. Uh, and when you've got guys like Adam Ashley Cooper, who's you know who's making a lot of tackle busts when he's in possession, and you've got a guy like Jesse Mogg who can carve up, and Israel Folau and James O'Connor and Christian Lelefano all in all in form, the quality's there to score points, but you have to create the pressure through defence, and you know clearly defence is what let them down. So if it was me, um, with my you know humbly speaking as a very inexperienced coach, I'd be I'd be looking to. Um, try and just create as much pressure as I could through defence and disrupt them that way. But mm. it's a it's a massive task. Yeah, Hugh, what, what, what's up your sleeve, mate? Yeah, I agree with Logs. I think that's you know that was the gaping hole from Saturday, which they've got to fill. Mm. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't think they need to do too much different. I'd like to see obviously a little bit more creativity in the backs, but um, I'd like to see the back row step up. That's what. You know, the ball carriers in the back row was was something we really missed. You know, that Wycliffe Palu kind of board bloke to, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to make 10 metres with every touch, but just do a lot of work and, and, and drag some, try and bend the line a bit. So I don't know what the answer is there, whether it's Ben McCalman, whether it's Scott Fardy. And um, the other one I'd like to see is I'd really like to see Nick Cummins get a run. Yeah. Uh, I think he, we really miss a. I don't know why he's not in the team, to be honest. Those few games last season where he went in and just, you know, tore around like a mad dog, um, I just really think we missed that. That just, a, you know, he just hurtling around, hitting blokes and, and crashing into blokes. And yeah. uh, that he brings an enthusiasm that I think we lack at the moment. I yeah. think that's, that's what Grazie was talking about earlier, you know, when he was saying to beat a side like that, you really have to create a situation where they go, hang on, this is not like what we've seen from these guys before. Yeah. And it, it really takes that, that different sort of personality, that really extreme level of enthusiasm and talk and commitment for the All Blacks to go, whoa, hang on, this is, this is unlike anything we've seen from these guys before, you know. And I think Saturday, after 10 minutes, they went, hey, this is the same old crew. Um, mm. We've got this in the bag if we just keep it. Uh, if we just keep it tight and, and work our patterns, and yep. clearly they did. Yeah, and because and that's the bit that I was surprised by actually, because I I agree with both of you guys and Grazie about this whole getting in the face place. But I think one of the key places you can do that, and the Reds, and this is why I was surprised, because when the Reds have had their success, so when they beat the Crusaders in just about every time they played them, um, where they won, 
and then in the 2011 final. And then also when you looked at what the Brumbies did this season, you know, the key to it was always around that breakdown battle and was getting in and making stink, you know, and committing some bodies, um, uh, you know, creating turnovers, making it, you know, shitty, making sure the ball wasn't good if you're going to get your hands on it, you know, all that sort of stuff, and and making sure your own ball was quick, you know, not letting people hang around and, and, and slow it down. And, but we were just, and, but we did the opposite of that. You know, it was back to the kind of everybody strung out, um, you know, across, uh, the back line again and, and, tr- and trying to swing it and get into the middle mid of the field and try and punch it there but it just wasn't working and I just I'm really I was really surprised by that um, that and I think Bob talked about it in his article as well is just you know we, we we definitely are still with that I want to call it Deansian I'm not sure it's his or not now um, but there's a seems to be a trap of and I don't know if it's saying well look we can't take these guys on at the breakdown so therefore we won't um, and we'll try and keep it away from it, kind of a bit Tars-like, um, or whether it's, you know, they just didn't do what they, you know, or, you know, just didn't see it or fell into the patterns they were used to as Wallabies. But I really think that's what you've got to do. And I think I'm just so surprised considering that you know that's the Reds' key plank of their game plan. Whenever they've taken on the Chiefs or the Crusaders, they know they have to belt them at the breakdown and they do it. And then, um, and the Brumbies have done it all year as well. So I was surprised not to see it. And I just think that's, you've got to have it back. Uh, that's probably where we, we expected a bit more from Hugh McManaman that we mm. didn't really get, you know. And he needs to be like the, you know, the chili in the dish sort of thing. You yeah. know, you, you need guys like Hall and Simmons doing the hard yards and doing that hard graft. Um, and, and guys like Moore and, and Slipper working in tight. But ultimately, you need a guy like McManiman who's just going to put that bit of stink in there. And, and if that doesn't happen, well, you know, it's very hard to just... You, you can't just be a good, honest team against the All Blacks. There's got to be something special in there. Well, and that's yeah. what I thought. McManiman, Moen, and then Fardy off the bench, to me, said... His, and, you know, together with, uh, you know, Simmons and Horwills as rock shifters. I mean, to me, they're a bunch of guys who can get in there and make stink. And uh, I'm just so surprised that we just didn't even try. You, you were going to say something there, Hugh? Yeah, you touched on a point there that I was thinking about today. <laughs> that was my real disappointment from the night. Not, the performance of the players was one thing, but you look at that game and there, I, to my eyes, there wasn't one sign that we had a new coach. It, mm. it was the same as we've always played at the Wallabies. It's There was the same style. There wasn't any new backline moves. There wasn't any discernibly new tactics. There wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Um, it was a bit of a fizzer on that count. I was kind of expecting to see, oh, you know, really excited to see what McKenzie had up his sleeve mm. um, to take on the All Blacks. And what we ended up seeing, well, you know, I, I, if you just showed that to me without knowing who the coach was, I probably would have said it was Robbie Deans. Mm. Um well- you know whether that's because they didn't execute on the field. I'm sure that's you know I'm sure they didn't execute on the field. So I, I'm not putting it all at, at um, the feet of Link. But um, at the same time, it was a bit of a you know I was a little bit disappointed in that regard. Well, no word of a lie. I walked past Robbie Deans on Sunday morning um, down at uh, Balmoral Beach, um, and uh, yeah, I won't say he had a smile on his face. Um, I, I couldn't quite tell. But that's probably a bit, a bit slack to say that. Um, but um, yeah, so he's around. Who knows? Maybe um, he was still. He was still coaching me on a Saturday night. Um, <laughs> all righty, so that's that's where too. So it's only in what it's only this weekend, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, oof, how much can you turn around a week? I tell you what. Um, talk about baptism of fire. Um, shall we talk about uh, another positive then, or a positive, and that is the Brumbies winning the World Club Sevens just um, overnight. I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, isn't that um, yeah? So that's fantastic news. Um, I, I'm not even sure if they'd even been in it before, isn't it? Logs, have you got? It's any, the first time they've ever had the event. Is that the first first time they've had the event? Is it? Yeah. Okay. So it's the the inaugural. yeah, that's right. Uh, but they beat Auckland, which was um, pretty astonishing. I mean, Auckland, you know, New Zealand have a great sevens record anyway. Mm. Um, Auckland are one of the. You know, one of the entertainers of out of all the New Zealand provinces. You know, they've got a great a great history of playing that really wide, expansive sort of rugby, and they've got a huge number of players to choose from. They're they're one of the strong provinces. So for the Brumbies to to win that um, over the Auckland Blues in London, that's a that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty great result. I think mm-hmm. they should be extremely excited about that. And and bearing in mind, um, aside from Henry Spate, uh, who is likely to be a Wallaby on the spring tour later in the year, they didn't really uh, have too many of their 
um, their leading lights. So, yeah. Yeah, well, good, good news there. Well, there's a, there's a full report and write-up on the site that uh, if you haven't read, you can go and have a look at. I'm sure we can probably dig out some footage from somewhere as well, um, and, and we'll get it in there. Um, Although, actually, I should, I should add there, um, they were captained by Robbie Coleman, who's a long-time Aussie Sevens player, so... Mm-hmm. They had some pretty good leadership there, and, and as we say with Henry Spate, you know that's that's a couple of good players out there. Yeah, oh, and I know Laurie Fisher went out there with them, so they had a good a good bit of coaching advice there as well. Um, okay, that's about it. I think probably the only other thing that popped up since our last podcast was um, there was an interesting article in the uh, City Morning Herald on the weekend um, by Andrew Webster, who's the chief sports writer um, with the Herald, and he was basically uh, I'm trying to remember what it was called something about the three oh with three amigo with friends like these. Uh, referring to the three amigos right um i guess in a lot of ways there wasn't a lot of new stuff in it except for a few little um, revelations about john o'neill himself what did you take on this whole thing Hugh? yeah look it, it didn't it wasn't a particularly uh revealing article it just kind of strung together everything that we already knew mm. um yeah look uh, i think it, it'll be a subject often studied in years to come in biographies and autobiographies and mm. looking back on this era. Um, I think a lot of it is obviously yet to come out, but um, I think what it reveals is Robbie Dean's had, you know, had a lot of trouble managing, managing the three players. Um, I don't think that, that comes as a surprise to anyone, but um, yeah. look, I think my point on, my take on it is all three of them have their own individual issues that were around long before they reached the Wallabies. And I think, um, being, you know, two of them, especially elevated to the Wallabies so young, didn't help at all. And, um, yeah, and and uh, Dean struggled to deal with them, especially because at the time where they were most problematic, they were three of the, the Wallabies' best players. And, you know, O'Connor was arguably our best player for a good year and a half, especially at that World Cup. So, yeah, it's a... I'm sure it'll be discussed for many years to come. So well, there, was a, to that. there was a couple of interesting anecdotes in there, and I guess the question that's raised on our forums with a few people is, you know, where have those come from? Because they're pretty detailed recollections, um, especially two anecdotes around John O'Neill. Did they shed any new light for you, Logs? Those those couple of ones. I think there was one where John O'Neill got told he couldn't sit somewhere on the bus by Curtly Bill because it was Quaid's seat. Um, and then another one about O'Neill absolutely going off the hook in the change rooms after a loss um, about guys, 20% of the of the players letting down the other 80% because they're always on their bloody phones. Mm. Um, did that shed anything to, for you or, or, you know, nothing? Oh, new? no. I mean, I, I think, it's, as Hugh said, it's a stringing together of a whole lot of stuff that was already out there. There are a couple of interesting anecdotes with which perhaps gave substance to some of that stuff. Um, I think perhaps the one that, the, the quote that got me most was, um, you know, after Cooper made the the toxic uh, environment comments um, that one of the senior Wallabies players said how stunned they were because he'd been at the cent- centre of the toxicity. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's probably the thing that came out of it most for me was that um, it appears certainly that, that most of the players were just as... Um, annoyed by it all as the fans and um, yet whoever is supposed to make that call um, on these guys and discipline these guys didn't and look it's been a long-standing beef for mine that um, O'Connor was essentially allowed to just get away with not even turning up for the the squad announcement for the 2011 World Cup now, mm-hmm. imagine that happening with the Springboks or the All Blacks you'd just never play for your country again it just they'd just they ditch you, you know, um, with for such a, an incredible lack of pride in what you were doing, and mm. and yet O'Connor was just allowed to stay on. So I've I've sort of had a, a long-standing beef with with him as a bloke and a player because of that specific incident, and everything else just added to it. Yeah, yeah. No, it. it um, I guess we we all had a bit of an idea about what had what had gone on there. The the thing that I thought was interesting about the article, I must admit, was. If you think about it, Saturday was kind of like the statutes of, of limitations for an article like that because it was the you know very very end of what you could loosely term the Dean's era, right? Because you know whatever happened on Saturday night from then on was always going to be the Link era, um, and so if you're ever going to publish that article, that would have been surely like the very last day you could do it um, with anyone kind of you know 
really giving a toss um, or without it not looking like you're really digging up old stuff. So I thought it was interesting that it came out then um, and I, that kind of made me wonder why. Uh, maybe I'm looking for conspiracies where there, there aren't any. But um, anyway, yeah, like you say, I'm sure... Well, we'll get... I think it's an issue as long as those guys are still around the Wallabies. Um, perhaps the other interesting quote was the one where, uh, you know, unnamed senior ARU official, so who knows, but... Um, said curtly gets into trouble because of alcohol quade doesn't know any better yeah. o'connor was the most cunning um he knew what he was doing it was never an accident he always escapes before the heat arrives and that sort of seems to be true you know yeah. um curtly and quade just don't necessarily seem to be the sharpest tools in the shed and after a few beers they do something stupid which we probably all did when we were young but um the fact that people still want those guys in the team and everybody's off O'Connor and O'Connor can't get a super rugby contract um, seems to show that he is the guy that, that is the uh, is seen by everybody anyway, whether it's true or not, but certainly it appears that everyone sees him as the real problem. Yeah. I've got to say, I, I, it's getting to the level now of public kind of whatever the term is, disapprobium. That's a pretty big pretty big word i'm sure that came from but um <laughs> is that like vilification something like that yeah um it's, it's getting to that sort of level where you i you, you start i mean i'm starting to feel sorry for the guy you know you're just thinking oh my, i mean because you must just wake up and there's yet another article now saying the same thing you know and um uh, you know and you you can see i think you can see any in his play I think those sorts of defensive problems, for example, that we saw on um, Saturday night, I think a lot of them, it's him trying to make up. You can see him, he's think, right, if I can just come out of the line here and, you know, put this dead, you know, or do whatever, you know, I've, I've got to make this tackle, da-da-da-da-da, and sometimes it's actually pushing him to um, try a bit too hard and actually ends up out of the line or leaving the wrong guy or whatever else it is. He's, you can kind of see it written across his face now. His last game for the Rebels was uh, was a classic to watch when uh, there had just been a, a whole lot of focus on him and focus on his difficulty in getting a contract and, and being let go by the Rebels and all this sort of thing. His last game for the Rebels, it was staggering the number of times he ran halfway across the field to pat someone on the back or, you know, just he was always there when somebody scored a try running with the bum taps, you know, it just looked yeah. like he was making this really overhyped effort to show what a team player he was and he just looked really out of sorts and, um, you know, and I, I see what you're saying. I mean, you sort of do have to feel sorry for the guy but you've also got to remember he is the one who has been ignoring every bit of feedback, every bit of advice from anyone who mattered for the last four or five years, and now it's coming home to roost. So you've yeah. sort of got to go, well, mate, you know, you may have to just pay the piper for a little while. Yeah, I think. Yeah, look, I think he's a. You're right, Lokes. He's a study. You know, he's. I think he's a. In my eyes, he's one of the classic examples of a bloke that's just elevated too young. He, you know, was he. Grew up in Queensland and he moved to the force when he was 17 and he hasn't been home since, basically. And uh, there are issues with his support network and, his, and his, the influence of his parents and a few other things that, that are kind of known behind the scenes but not so much in public. And I think that all goes into building what, what he is at the moment. So I'm torn between, yeah, feeling sorry for the bloke for the amount of criticism he cops because ultimately, you know, he's just a footy player. Um, but uh, at the same time, thinking, yeah, he obviously is. You could say the same about the amount of adulation that he used to get as well. He's just yeah. a footy player. Yeah. yeah, and that's true. And that's true. It cuts both ways. It's, 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 I'm getting all um, you know, classical on us tonight, but it's, yes, it's the Icarus fable, isn't it, right? It's uh, you know, flying too close <laughs> to the sun. I don't know what I've oh. – I don't know if I've drunk. What, oh, what, goodness. What, what happened? Yeah. I must have a glass of wine before you did this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I swallowed a dish. The sum total of my education has just come out in, in the last five minutes. That's all I got. I'm spent. <laughs> um, all righty. So the only thing left to talk about is if we thought we got a shellacking, um, and it was, uh, 73-13, the Springboks over the Argies. Um I didn't. I, I left this game at about two in the morning in a in a pub. Uh, so um, yeah, I, it's it's a bit wonky uh, my memory of it. Um, Baba, did you see any of it in the cold light of day? Um, I presume you were in a bar. I thought you were just at the you know the local sort of um, uh, haunts. You know, discussing Icarus and you know uh, <laughs> various sort of Greek mythologies. Wine bar poetry reading. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I read my fifty uh, there. Yeah, yeah. But um, oh look, I I didn't see the game. I only saw the highlights. But oh. um, 
well, they the must have gone for like 30 still... minutes today. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It was just that typical Springbok grinding. I mean, most of the tries were scored from sort of uh, 20 you know, well, 20 centimetres more or less. But, mm. I mean, it, there were some real softies, though. The Argies just uh, had a bit of a nightmare, I think, and and um, really collapsed to the box. So part of that is the box do have a bloody menacing team. Mm. Um, because the thing about the box is you look at them in Super Rugby and you go, I'm not sure where the team's coming from then, but they just add a few blokes from the Northern Hemisphere, um, which as as is their rules that they're allowed to do. Mm. Um, and it just adds that touch of class. And, and yeah, so I think... It's uh, it's going to be a bloody good fight for for second place, even first place if the box can really take it to the All Blacks. So yeah, it could, should be good to watch. Alrighty, and Logs, did you see any of it? Oh, look, I only saw the same as you. You know, just um, a little bit late night and uh, and some highlights. So, but there wasn't much to it. It, it just looked like um, the Argentines were uh, were totally outclassed. Um, and you know it'll be just interesting to see what they can do. They they don't usually travel that well, but um, they're always tough at home. So you know I think the only hope for them is they can perhaps be a bogey team for a couple of sides. Anyway, look, we know it's getting towards the end of the podcast because I think the internet is just blown up at Hughes Place. Uh, we've worn it out. Um, so mate, look, just to say um, thanks for joining. Good to talk to you. Yeah, pleasure. Always a pleasure to uh, get on here and, and wang on. Yep, have a good old wang. Um, <laughs> none, none of the sound bites that you have to worry about with your usual media jaunts. Uh, plenty of time and space here. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening, downloading, and everything else. Um, I apologize. There were a couple of actually really good questions um, that I we talked about putting to from from um, a couple of guys from uh, Twitter but then when it all went when technology went to shit it basically that went out the window as well so apologies guys we'll try and get some better questions in next week um, but thanks for joining thanks for joining Logs and um, we'll see you all next week terrific mate look forward to it thanks mate Seven left. Seven left.